You're listening to the Gator Sports Podcast with your host, Zach Alboverde. Coming in hot. And Graham Hall. Jumping. Coming smooth. Jumping. And the bass gets jumping. Brought to you by the Gainesville Sun and Gatorsports.com. Welcome into the Gator Sports Podcast presented by the Gainesville Sun. I'm your host, Zach Alboverde, joined to my right by Graham Hall, and we are back in the Sun Studios after another win in the swamp and a rebound win for the Gators after their loss to Alabama, 38-14 to over the Tennessee Volunteers, a career best game for Emory Jones, a lot to dissect from that performance, and a second half shutout from the defense after some spotty plays in the first half, but all in all, a comfortable win. I think you saw Florida maybe get the end result that everybody expected, but it the way that they got there was not how everyone expected, right, Graham? I think the only comparisons you can make between the Tennessee game and the Alabama game were that Florida kind of wants to forget how that first quarter shaked out. I know that Dan Mullen, after the game, shrugged off mentions of it being a slow start, but they were trailing early to a team that a lot of people, including both of us, thought that they would blow out of the water. But like was, they did in the second half. <laughs> yeah, like they did in the second half. But exactly, there was a lot of good to take out of that game. And you have to look at the full 60 minutes of play, not just the first 15. And that's what we're going to do here today is talk about all the stuff that shook out on Saturday in the Swamp. Yeah, and I think when you look specifically at the defense, like every little thing that happens in the game is going to get put under a microscope and scrutinized given how the unit performed last year and how upset Florida fans have been with Todd Grantham, but call it like it is, he's had a great game plan the last two games. And the way that he especially adjusted in the second quarter against Alabama and then the second half against Tennessee, he's really done a good job in the first two SEC games figuring out what the offense is trying to do and making the necessary changes to to kind of shut them down. And if you look at what Alabama scored on and what Tennessee scored on, it wasn't Grantham's fault. I mean, like you had two of their first three touchdowns for the Crimson Tide were on missed tackles, and then obviously missed tackles on that first touchdown for Tennessee, and then a blown coverage on the second one. After that, Tennessee doesn't even really come close to the end zone. Uh, I mean, they got that that field goal attempt before the half. So I thought the Gators did struggle at times with the hurry-up offense, especially right there at that last drive where Tennessee was trying to get some points. But look, when you – shut down a team and you kind of dominate them when you have to and I think they won third down which was important you know they won the third down battle defensively and they won it offensively you're going to win the ball game I think the biggest knock on Todd Grantham's defense has always been how much leeway it kind of gives the opposition a chance to really hit you for that big play but that wasn't the case on Saturday I I really did come away feeling as if most of the mistakes were and I hate to say on the players but just when you got three guys right there in the vicinity to make uh, yeah. the stop, and then the guy scores a 47 yard touchdown, you can't bad, bad design by the defensive coordinator. I mean, are you sitting there yelling at the coordinator for, you know, when they're arm tackling? I mean, that just doesn't make too much sense to me. It kind of feels like the term scapegoat in a sense where everyone is so quick to say, well, it's got to be, it's another big play, another 75 yard gain. It's got to be on our defensive coordinator. And, and missed tackles are going to happen. Let's get yeah. that out of the way. Like, Every Not team has every them. single guy is going to make every single tackle in every single play, but what you don't want is multiple missed tackles or a missed tackle to turn into a big touchdown play. Yep. 
because the guy that, that was right there to make the stop wasn't able to do it. And, and especially if you have more than one guy, which was the case on Tennessee's first touchdown. But, again, we're sitting here nitpicking because that's what we do in the media, and that's what Florida fans do because they have high expectations for their defense just like they do for their offense. Because as bad as the offenses were around here before Dan Mullen got hired as the head coach, the Gators had some really, really elite defensives. Yep. And a lot of elite defensive performances. And that's what Florida fans are used to, just like they crave that offense that they got from Meyer and Spurrier. So, but at the end of the day, you know, we'll kind of get into the breakdown in the second segment. But I think going over to the offensive side, come out right away and, and score on your first drive once again. Tennessee is able to kind of score first, or score more, should I say, in the first half. And it was really on that offense to kind of turn around and they came out in that second half and, and really just put the game away as a whole. Emory Jones' performance running and passing the ball. Everyone's kind of seen what he did historically with, with Tim Tebow in the category he put himself in. But 100 yards rushing, 200 yards passing. But most importantly, no turnovers in this game. And I think that was huge for him. I was a little surprised that more people were not praising Emory Jones in the immediate aftermath of that performance not just from the statistics that he put up getting in the company of Tim Tebow but what you just said he ran the offense and it was a turnover free performance the first couple of games and even against Alabama you could have absolutely come away looking at his turnovers thinking oh man that's troublesome down the stretch if he doesn't improve this and now we're sitting here game four a month into the season and he's putting up statistics that people, once again, and this isn't a shot, but we said this last year, when Kyle Trask was making it a regularity of throwing for 400-plus yards and breaking Rex Grossman and Danny Warfel's records, it kind of was underwhelming reception, I think you could say. And now Emory Jones is alleviating a lot of the only remaining concerns I think people could have with him. Ball con- security, control. And then production in the passing game as well. I mean, he hadn't cracked 200 yards passing, hadn't had you know multiple touchdown throws in the game, and now he's done that. And people still want to see the big play at Emory Jones. They still want to see him hit Jacob Copeland down the sideline for 75 yards, the way John Brantley did against the Crimson Tide nine years ago. But maybe that's not him. Maybe his best ability is his ability to run the football. And to be fair, he has stretched the field vertically at times. I mean, his his touchdown throw to Xavier Henderson, oh, yeah. it wasn't a 60-yard, 70-yard bomb, but that was a well-placed Great deep throw. ball. Yeah, I mean, the guy's ability... And we've heard Mullen brag about his deep ball. Strength. And people seem to be okay with Kyle Trask's lack of arm strength last year. I mean, everyone was talking about how he can only you know throw it 40 to 50 yards downfield, and it wasn't ma- this massive knock on him at the time because of the play calling. And he was so accurate with his intermediate throws, which yeah. what we saw from Emory Jones last night, 77.8% completion percentage, and I think what was the 10th best all-time among Florida quarterbacks and however recently that had been. So when you start kind of putting up numbers like that, it, it's coming together. And again, this was his fourth start. His fourth. The standards for accuracy have gone through the roof, let's let's call it like that. I, I mean, mean, hey, Felipe Franks, he set the the school record in that uh, that one game. I remember? mean, you go back and look at the '80s. Also, I know that this is kind of antiquated here, but you look at guys like like Marino when he had a tremendous you know start to his NFL career. He was throwing it, completing it at what fifty eight percent, and now you could go out there 
and complete 21 to 27 passing. And people are going to turn around and be like, eh, well, you know, two receivers kind of ran the route and that was an incompletion. So you got to get that. They're still going to find something to nitpick. That's going to be probably the case throughout Emory Jones's entire rest of his career here at UF. They're going to find some way to compare him to the high standards set previously, whether it was, you want to say Kyle Trask or Dak Prescott going back to Dan Mullen's days in Mississippi State. Whatever you say, they're going to say, oh, he, he hasn't lived up to that expectation because of the crazy passing stats that were set the year before. And we were saying this in the offseason. That's probably going to be the worst thing that Emory Jones has to work against. It is an entirely different offense. He's going to rush maybe more than he passes the ball sometimes. And that's just going to have to be what Florida fans accept. It doesn't mean that he's a bad quarterback or inaccurate, all these other labels that we heard through three weeks. It just means that it's a growing process. And once he actually steps into and feels comfortable in that offense, I think you'll see him settle down. And, and that's what I think we're seeing right now, Zach. You would hope now that he goes into an SEC road game and is able to learn from the experiences that he's had now and that, that trip to USF. But we'll get into Anthony Richardson as well and kind of where things stand with his injury, second straight game where he doesn't play. But there, there's a lot to take away from this game. We'll kind of go through all of it after we come back from this first break here on the Gator Sports Podcast. <laughs> This is Gainesville Sun Sports Editor Arnold Feliciano. Please support our coverage of University of Florida Athletics by subscribing to the Gainesville Sun or Gatorsports.com. It's easy. Just go to www.gainesville.com slash subscribe now. Thank you for your support. I'm Blake Topmeyer, and this is SEC Football Unfiltered, a new podcast from the USA Today Network. Each week, we'll discuss the hottest topics that matter to the passionate fan bases of the SEC. I've covered the SEC for eight years. As for my co-host, longtime sports columnist John Adams, let's just say he's got a few decades on me. Not as many decades as some people think. Contrary to popular opinion, I did not cover General Nealon, but I did interview Bear Bryant, and I interviewed Nick Saban, and I covered Archie Manning and Peyton Manning. More insightful interview, John. Bear Bryant, Archie Manning, Steve Spurrier, or Johnny Majors? Gotta go with Steve Spurrier there. He's the great quipster. SEC Football Unfiltered debuts this summer. Let John and I be your tour guides from the season opener through the national championship. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back into the Gator Sports Pod. Zach and Graham here. Now, when we got there Saturday, we found out some news. Obviously learned that Anthony Richardson wasn't going to play as it as the kind of first quarter played out, but also learned pregame that the Gators were going to be without Kyrie Elam. And that really kind of changed things for them going into the game in the secondary and put a lot of young guys out there at corner. And, and you saw it there in that first half, which – I thought they struggled at times with trying to get lined up and just communicate what their coverage assignments were. I mean, there was one time where Rashad Torrance like literally walked up to a guy and like had to hit him to make sure that he was lining up right. So, but there, a lot of newness there because you don't have Jaden Hill and then you don't have Kyer Elam. That's that that puts a lot on that secondary. But I think overall, they weren't able to give up a lot of big plays in the passing game. I mean, Hendon Hooker had a lot of success, but other than that 75-yard bomb, which was a blown coverage, I mean, they they kept everything in front of them. I think often about what the crowd noise at home can sometimes do to your own defense. Yeah. When you're missing a guy like Kyer Elam or Ventro Miller, which was the case 
with both those guys for the Gators, these dating back to last week against Alabama, you think that that crowd noise would affect the communication on the defensive side. And I think that you did see some of that stuff. And that's not to you know tell Florida fans that they should stop yelling when your SEC Eastern rival shows up here and is lined up, especially with a young quarterback like Hendon Hooker, which we're going to talk about him more here in a second. Because, I mean... That's we, QB1 for the Vols. Absolutely. I think that we talk often about the Florida side and the storylines for Florida, the implications, but Tennessee got here with a quarterback battle, whatever you want to, if you want to believe their head coach. Uncertainty, for sure. I mean, they were uncertain. That's, let's use that term. They were uncertain of what they had at quarterback because I don't think anyone watched that game who has watched Joe Milton the first three games felt like he was comparable to Hendon Hooker. Hooker was miles better. And we had Mike Wilson on the podcast here last week. He claimed it. And and he thought that Hooker would step into that role out of this game. And I think you saw why they did a lot of things on both sides of the ball that the Gators were just not expecting. I think it's fair to say that this was kind of like their Super Bowl in a sense here. Yeah. This was a chance for Josh Heupel to really have a statement win early into his tenure. And he had some good play calls. And he had some, yeah, he had some great play calls. And talking to the guys after the game, they said that they did some things, the volunteers did defensively, that Florida just had not seen in their film preparation, was not expecting. And so, yeah, give them a whole lot of credit for their attempts. Yeah, I mean, they made it a game in the in the first half. And I, I think I mentioned that Florida secondary kept everything in front of them. There was that one play uh, down the left sideline where Hooker just overthrew his guy, but he had yep. him wide open. So they, they did a good job kind of scheming Florida up there, and, and you saw some of that inaccuracy show up with some of the downfield throws, and there was, there was just a couple times where he just wasn't able to connect with his receiver. But he showed some poise in the swamp for sure. Now, there were times where the crowd got to them, and they had some false Definitely. starts and delay of games and what have you. But really going back and looking at it in hindsight, like we kind of mentioned to start the pod, I mean – as a whole, the defense played well. I mean, the missed tackles showed up throughout the game. It wasn't just on that one first touchdown. I thought they did a better job in the second half than they did in the first half. But that first series of the third quarter, I mean, they came right out. Tennessee did, and it's like I think it was like three straight plays with missed tackles by the Gators. One of them from Diabate, who owned it after the game. So, I mean, th- that's just something that we've seen now as an issue for this defense, something they have to continue to try to get better at and work on, and Diabate also discussed that. He kind of met with Coach Robinson after the game just to address it because he's so upset about it. But other than that, and then just a blown coverage by Mordecai McDaniel where he gets caught looking in the backfield at the, at the, at the fake and then just leaves his guy wide open, totally out of position, and Mullen said after the game, hey, it's, we're in man-to-man coverage, cover your man. And that doesn't happen. So Again, looking at it in that context, from those two touchdowns on, I mean, Florida really kind of dominated Tennessee, and they won the third down battle. And more than anything, like they didn't let busted plays and just touchdowns that they allowed where they didn't execute or they missed tackles, they didn't let that throw them off or or get them into a situation where they start finger-pointing or, you know what I mean, let it uh, snowball into more poor performance. So I give the defense a lot of credit because this is two weeks in a row now where they've given up some big plays, gotten down, and they've turned it around. Yeah, the lack of finger-pointing 
on this defense, I think, is something we absolutely got to note because. And we heard it from Jeremiah Moon as well. He mentioned it last week. They've used the term united. This is a united team because I think they realize what we all realize that mistakes happen and sometimes they're going to be exploited and they're going to show up on film because the quarterback's going to take advantage of them. And sometimes no one catches your mistake because they don't know your assignment. And when you don't face the heat, that is when, you know, your teammates can look around and say, hey, mistakes happen to all of us. And I can't blame another teammate just because their mistake ended up hurting us badly because I make mistakes as well. And I think last year, especially coming off the way that season ended defensively with the Marco Wilson shoe throw, I, you know, I hate to even bring it back up. You could definitely make a case that this team could have come into the season with some animosity, some, you know, we, we use the term chip on our shoulder, some unresolved issues, whatever you want to call it, with the secondary. Because this front seven has been dominant at times. You easily could have seen guys like Jeremiah Moon, Mahmoud Diabate, Zach Carter point and say, hey, you know, if our guys back there would just take care of their business, we'd be a complete defense. You haven't seen any of that, even though the mistakes have still been there. And I think that's huge for Florida's progress on the defensive end moving forward. Because, I mean, if anyone saw that Georgia game, Zach, this team can't start pointing fingers this early because it's going to be to their own detriment. You, you can't let egos exist. You can't let any fault exist. The belief that you're playing poorly because of a few individuals. This defense would absolutely see their ceiling lowered if that were to happen through, what, a third of the season? And I think that all Florida fans should come away with looking at that big picture of the mistakes rather than thinking about individual one or two plays that ultimately haven't really hindered Florida's chances too much. I mean, we saw after that Alabama game, they all could have said, oh, well, special teams mistakes. Uh, You know, Jamarcus Weston fields that ball, fair catches it, Chris Howard hits the PAT. No, you didn't see any of that. So I think overall it is nitpicks like we keep saying on here because it hasn't become an issue where the defense is blaming one another for all the mistakes that are happening. And Graham, I would say that it is not a mistake that the Gators are ranked in the top five nationally when it comes to rushing because once again, they prove that their ground game is legit against the Tennessee Volunteers who coming into the game had not given up 100 yards in any of their three games to a team. And then the Gators rack up 283 on the ground, 144 yards from Emory Jones, and then 139 yards from their running backs. And I thought Mullen made a great point after the game. He's like, hey, these three guys combined, our top three backs, got 25 carries, almost 150 yards. It's a pretty good day for a running back. Yeah. You know, if we didn't rotate them, but that's kind of how their rotation works. And between the three of those guys, and Emory Jones and Anthony Richardson, Florida's got one of, if not the best, rushing attack in the country. Because right now, I think they're ranked third nationally behind Army and Air Force. But those teams run the ball way more than Florida does and, and don't have the type of weapons and just the skill level that the Gators have. So this legitimately might be the best ground game in the country along with the offensive line and its performance that we've seen run blocking and just doing a good job once again giving Emory Jones time. But his contributions 
in the run game and his just emergence of what he's able to do with his legs and having a career-high game, that 49-yard run, that type of weapon that you have at quarterback coupled with all those different running backs, like when you get into the game and you see them play, you can't make an argument for any of them to not be in the rotation. I mean, I don't even know which one of them is the best at this point because Davis, Pierce, and Wright are all producing, scoring, making plays when they get on the field. And you feel bad for a guy like Lorenzo Lingard who's, you know, you kind of watch him during the game. He's like going up and down the sideline waiting on his opportunity. But when you're in a close game like this, it's hard to take one of those three guys off the field given the way they're playing. I do feel bad for Lorenzo Lingard at this point. I mean, how can you not? Oldest guy in the room. Because I'm sure he could get on the field and produce as much as those guys. It's it's just they've kind of earned that right at this point more than him. He'd be getting at least six to eight reps on any other Power 5 football team, in my opinion. I, I mean, I feel bad for him. But every time you look at Damian Pierce or Malik Davis and now Naquan Wright, every time they touch the football, they kind of make the case for being the lead back. Naquan Wright, he was fantastic against Alabama, and I thought he looked extremely good against the Volunteers. Kind of when he he can't really know when he's coming in, right? I mean, that guy, you think it's going to be the third quarter of most games when, when everyone needs a breather, but I really never know when he's going to come into the game. But it seems like every time that he is the featured back on a drive, he makes something happen, whether it's in the run game or the pass game. And so he makes a case for you wanting to use him more than you already do. And then Malik Davis is, I mean, what a kind of a renaissance here in a sense here, the way he's finding the end zone. I want to add on him, go back. If you guys watch the game, look at the shot that he took from Josh Braun on one of his last runs. I mean, I didn't know if he was going to come back into the game. And then he checks in, and in his first play back in after taking that shot, he scores that touchdown that delivers the knockout blow. So I'm sure that was probably felt good for him to get back out there and shake off that hit. I think a lot of people kind of think that he's probably, I don't want to say like the least tough back in the room, but I think you could make a case that he may have been, in a lot of people's eyes, the least talented back in the room. And that chip on his shoulder, I think you're seeing that toughness come out on the field every single time. Malik Davis gets his opportunity. He's making up for, I think, a lot of lost time in a sense because really this is what he should have been doing in his sophomore year. And I think he feels that every time he touches the football. And then there's Damian Pierce, which, man, he's making like Madden-level jukes out there. (laughs) Making dudes, I mean, want to scrub the footage. They got to be embarrassed what he's doing to them out there. I mean, those are SEC football players. It's not like they're playing like, like Holy Cross University or something like that. He's embarrassing guys who had offers from Georgia and Alabama and Clemson and Ohio State. I mean, and he's jumping over guys and, left and right. And to his credit, like he describes himself as more of a power a kind bruiser. of bruising runner. Yeah. So for him to just be juking guys on top of that. He got hurdled by Lendale White. It just speaks to his skill set and, and why he's always on the field. And, you know, I, I just think that their running back room and how they've figured out that rotation, especially with the top three guys. And look, it's kind of like Anthony Richardson and Emory Jones because those three running backs all support each other whenever they get on the field and it's their drive and they score the first two guys to celebrate them when they get off the field are those two other running backs. So it's just, it's cool to see because let's be honest, you don't get that everywhere and you wouldn't get that everywhere in this type of offense and when you have that many talented running backs in one room. So uh, you mentioned 
Malik Davis uh, making up for lost time before we get to this final segment. Another guy who's making up for lost time, Rick Wells, man. Shout out to number 12. Another touchdown catch. But how about that grab that he had along the sidelines, getting that foot down? He's showed to be a really valuable receiver for the Gators, and and he's making the most of the sixth year. I'm glad you mentioned that reception because it looked like he had a tiptoe on the sidelines and then stop himself from running right into the wall there where the crowd was. That was incredible. You saw all those footwork videos coming out over the years when he was working with Tyree Cleveland and and Freddie Swain and Van Jefferson, and now it's really all coming to fruition for him. I low-key love that my buddy Mark Long has to write about him more than he ever planned (laughs) on. So tremendous. I mean, living up to really the depth of that wide receiver room that we've talked about throughout the offseason, we had said that if you could really give Florida's position any benefit of the doubt, you know, coming into the year from a lack of production standpoint that they'd step up, it was going to be that wide receiver room. Guys like Jamarcus Weston, Trent Whittemore. I mean, you thought that those guys would naturally ascend because we've seen it time and time again. And, and you're seeing that now with Rick Wells, who a lot of people counted out as ever being a guy who could produce at this level. And now he's making highlight real plays. It's it's tremendous to see the the patience pay off because I think that's a huge thing for not only him, but the running back room as well. The patience. I mean, these guys didn't really have an opportunity the last two years because of the talent ahead of them. Florida's quarterback talent made it so the running backs really kind of had to be idle and sit back. And Rick Wells watched some of his you know, best friends and teammates produce above him because they were more talented at the time. And now you're seeing all those guys be rewarded. You got you to gotta feel for them. Graham, you mentioned highlights. There's one that we've not talked about yet. I want to save it for the last break because... It is a Kodak moment that deserves its own segment. So we'll be right back after this break. Welcome back into the final segment. It's time for Graham and I to hand out some helmet stickers as we do every Monday coming off of Florida's game. And look, for the Gators coming into that second half, I think it was very important for their offense to produce in the red zone because they got down there once in the first half where they reached the 20, drive stalled, had to settle for a field goal. Then right at the end of the half, on fourth down, they go for it, convert it, get inside the red zone. But at the end of the play, Jacob Copeland gets the ball stripped and fumbles at the 15. And Florida misses a golden opportunity to score right before the half. So Dan Mullen made sure that the next time my offense gets in the red zone, we are scoring. And he went back into his old bag of tricks and dialed up Kodak, which was the double pass from Florida's game against Mississippi State that delivered the game-winning score. Kadarius Toney to Morrill Stevens and Saturday night. We saw Trent Whittemore tossing it to Kamori Gamble and really, after that score and just that moment in the swamp, it was kind of the Gators game from there. They, they never lost momentum. They reeled off two more touchdown drives after that. And I think for Mullen in that offense, like I said, it was key for them to just punch it in there and make up for those last couple drives and to dial up that trick play there, to have it executed. We heard from Whittemore uh, that they had been working on it all week in practice, and Emory Jones said that he gave him permission to use his – bow and arrow celebration after he uh, threw that pass. So my helmet sticker goes to Trent Whittemore for that touchdown pass. Although that's not his first time tossing the ball around and uh, throwing touchdowns. He actually started at quarterback 
during his high school career at Buholt. So very good job of Dan Mullen of utilizing that skill set and finding the right time to call that play again. Yeah, we've been gloating about Anthony Richardson on here a little bit too much recently. I don't know if we've uh, taken enough time to highlight the amazing prep career that Trent Whittemore had at Buholtz. I mean, that guy, multi-sport athlete, and I've said this on here before, I must have. There was a game where he had the flu in the entire week leading up, but a bunch of other guys were out as well. So he knew he had to play. And that week, he played five positions in the game with the coming off the flu. He played quarterback, running back, DB, safety, and punter. Beast! I mean, I don't know if the guy got a, a break the entire game because every single play, he was out there on the field. Coming off the flu. And his dad, who is the coach of Buholt, stopped me after the game and said, you know what, I don't know how you're going to work this in, but you know, Trent was throwing up before the game, really wasn't feeling good. We had to get some fluids in him, didn't know if he'd play. And he goes out in there and has one of the most amazing performances that I've seen without the circumstances being known to me at the time. Well, I'll say, I mean, you mentioned Anthony Richardson, another guy from Gainesville coming here and, and playing for the Gators. But who would have thought once the season got going that Trent Whittemore would throw a touchdown pass in the swamp before Anthony Richardson? Ooh, <laughs> man, I like that. that I actually, like that. That actually happened on, on Saturday night. So uh, a little friendly competition there from the 352 products. You know, we've, we've seen them have some dunk contests before, so maybe Trent will try to rub that in Ant's uh, face a little bit. But, hey, great throw from Trent, and obviously that wasn't the only great throw of the night. Yeah, definitely not. Emory Jones gets mine. Let me just go out there and say it like this. There was absolutely the potential that he could have what we discussed, a letdown performance, a step back, or one that really wasn't going to make you think that he was taking steps forward, showing gradual improvement. His game against the Crimson Tide, I thought was really good, but we all could have made the argument afterwards that, oh man, this guy, let me use the same term I used for Tennessee. That was his Super Bowl. He easily could have come out there and thrown some incompletions that looked really, really bad, let alone some interceptions or fumbled. You know, we've talked about him being a ball carrier and we don't highlight enough that his ball security has been tremendous when he's on these designed run plays. He easily could have looked a lot worse than he did on Saturday night. My helmet sticker goes to Emory Jones. He took a lot of steps forward. Deserves for everyone right now to be talking about him in the same sentence as Tim Tebow after going out there, passing for 200-plus and, and rushing for 100-plus. That was a huge game from him, and I think it should you know, alleviate a lot of the concerns of a lot of people right now who still are anxious about Anthony Richardson's injury situation. I mean, yeah, we saw him doing more backflips after the game, but there is still no indication that he's going to be 100% able to participate this week in practice, although we've heard Dan Mullen say that is the plan for him to be 100%. It made you just rest easier at night, knowing that even if Anthony needs to sit one more week against a 4-0 Kentucky team, that you have a guy in Emory Jones who just completed 21-27 passing and, most importantly, played a clean game. Grant, before the season, I actually predicted that I thought Jones would rush for over 1,000 yards in 2021, and it seems like he's on pace for that. And You mentioned the Tim Tebow stat, the first Gator quarterback to rush for 100 yards, pass for 200 yards in a game since Tebow in 2009. He did it four times in his UF career. I would not be surprised to see Emory Jones 
do that a couple more times this year. But just to even be in that category and have that type of performance after that long of a drought, it shows you how much the production had dropped off at the quarterback position. And it does take a, a special dual threat guy to, to do that. I mean, we've seen great performances from quarterbacks who maybe had a 100-yard rushing game or had a 200-yard performance passing and also made some plays with his legs, but not 144 yards on the ground. So definitely props to number five and props to number zero on the defensive side. Trey Dean the third gets my helmet sticker, led the team in tackles on Saturday with 11 and is tied for the lead on the team for the season in tackles. But for him to kind of be where he's at coming off of the way that the season started for him, he right on the opening kickoff gets taken out against Ford Atlantic. I'm sure it took him a while to kind of shake that off, certainly in that game and maybe even the following week. But for him to play, I think, the way that he did against Alabama and then certainly this past week against Tennessee, he's just really coming into his own at that safety spot. And he's doing a lot of different things in the secondary, too. I mean, he's lining up all over and, and taking different assignments. But I think it's very important that Florida is getting some consistent play from him and that he's played the way that he has at least recently because they need that from their safety spot because I don't think that they've gotten enough solid play out of the other guys. And, look, I mean, Mordecai McDaniel, what happens, or what happened on the 75-yard touchdown, but – I mean, there there were other times in the game where he gave up some plays as well, and he's a young guy, so you know it's it's not trying to pick on him or, or or single him out. He's still got a lot of room left to to grow and develop and improve. But I think he's not obviously where Trey Dean is at, and I don't think Rashad Torrance is there either. Although he's he's made plenty of plays, and and but then times where I mean he was also in there on that missed tackle on that Tennessee's first touchdown. So I think you still got a lot of youth there at that safety spot. So Trey Dean. Being that example, leading the team in tackles and just having a performance like that in the SEC game, that's kind of setting the standard that they needed that safety spot. And you remember that this was a guy that wouldn't even confirm in that first week of August that he was going to be the leader at safety. He was saying he was playing everywhere. It was not a given, at least in the outside eyes, that he was going to be the leader at that position through four games this season. We didn't know he could have been shuffled around based on what Florida's needs were in the second could have ended up back at star but you look at how much youth is in that secondary especially in that safety room trey dean has a huge role it's absolutely leadership off the field getting guys to watch film organize work out afterwards get in early that's his role for the safeties yeah and be ready when it's their opportunity in the rotation and the communication aspect uh on the field you know we talked about kyer elam being out for that game, where do we think that responsibility fell? I mean, <laughs> Trey Dean instantly becomes the you know the elder statesman in a sense in the room there Great that point. everyone's looking to if they're lost out there. So give him a whole lot of credit. You mentioned leading the team in tackles. Uh, I'm going to go with the guy that he's tied with with my helmet sticker. That's Mahmoud Diabate. I talked about him a lot these last two weeks simply because of the huge role that he had to fill. Ventrell Miller goes down, the guy who's giving you 140 tackles the last two years. That front seven could have absolutely had a drop-off, but I really think the last two weeks with Diabate in there, they've played some of their strongest games that I've seen in a couple years there, and that's not a disservice whatsoever to Ventrell Miller. I just think that what Diabate has done in embracing 
the responsibility that now falls on his shoulders, he was kind of the perfect guy to weather the storm there for Florida. I wrote about this uh, this week on Gatorsports.com and in the Gainesville Sun, but Diabate, this is his third year stepping in to a starting role because someone went down. Jeremiah Moon, the first two years there, then he kind of plays that outside linebacker role. And after playing it the last two years, they spend the whole offseason saying, okay, Mahmoud, you're going to learn outside linebacker again, bulk up, play more on the edge. And then Ventrell goes down, who he was kind of rotating with last year, backing up, whatever you want to call it. So he has to move back to the role that he really spent last year at. Has absolutely not missed a beat in that defense. They have been tremendous. Another eight tackles for him this weekend. Huge play for him. He's going to be huge for the Gators moving forward. A guy that in his junior year has now played every single game with Florida. It's clear that he's a pivotal piece in this defense, Zach. And just great to hear from him in post-game press conferences and just press conferences in general because he's has so much accountability and he takes ownership of what he feels like is not a good performance from him or his teammates. So to have a guy like that leading the linebacker room and just being one of the, the leaders on defense, that's only going to help that unit improve as the season goes. And and we'll see if the defense can continue to improve as a whole, have a complete performance. I know they're going to need that probably this weekend at Kentucky. And we will join you guys later on this week to preview that game, let you know about the Wildcats and what Florida's got to do to uh, try and go up there and get another win in Lexington after we saw the Kyle Trask coming out party in Florida's last trip. For Graham Hall, I'm Zach Albuquerque. No one.